Cozy character home come bed and breakfast in a quaint New England town, featuring eight bedrooms, three bathrooms, two reception rooms, and a partially finished basement. A basement where, 130 years ago, police found a broken hatchet believed to have been used to commit one of the most notorious crimes in American history. In the state of Massachusetts, there is no legal requirement to disclose that a property was the site of a felony, suicide, or homicide or that the property has been the site of alleged parapsychological or supernatural phenomenon. But the neighbors are only going to tell you anyway. Don't let its period charm fool you. This house was the scene of a brutal double murder and remains the site of a very active haunting today. Sound like the home for you? Well, if you're in the market for a haunted house, you've come to the right place. I'm Caitlin Blackwell-Baines. Welcome to Haunted Homes. Two thirty Second Street, Fall River, Massachusetts, once known as Ninety Two Second Street, Fall River, Massachusetts, and today better known as the Lizzie Borden House, a reference to the woman famously accused but ultimately acquitted of the brutal double murder that took place there in eighteen ninety two, the hatchet murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, Lizzie's father and stepmother. Part two of our tour of this infamous crime scene slash haunted house will pick up right where we left off with the transformation of the former Borden family home into a popular bed and breakfast and tourist attraction. Its evolution began over half a century ago, in 1954, when John and Josephine McGuinn purchased the infamous property, turning it into their own family home, where, on regular occasions, their granddaughter, Martha McGuinn, the future owner and proprietor of the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, would visit and stay the night. While Martha doesn't have any sinister memories from her childhood weekend spent there, The family never dwelt on the home's gruesome history. She does remember plenty of strange and possibly supernatural events. There was never any sighting or anything, Martha recalls, but there were definitely footsteps on the stairs or in the floor above me. As a child, she would sleep in the Emma Borden room, Lizzie's elder sister, and in the attic above was the Borden family maid Bridget Sullivan's bedchamber. Was it the restless spirit of Bridget causing all the ruckus? Or just Martha's fertile young imagination? If it was a delusion, it was a shared one. Martha says that when her father stayed in the house, he would blast me in the morning for waking him up, believing his daughter was pacing the floors and rearranging furniture in the wee hours of the night. But Martha would insist she had been asleep the whole time. We would have lights that would go off and on, doors that would open and shut, radios turning themselves on, she says, alarm clocks that weren't wound all of a sudden started ringing. All of it strange and inexplicable, but none of it all that intense or scary. It wouldn't be until the mid-1990s that the paranormal activity started to ramp up. It was around this time that Martha and her partner, Ron Evans, inherited the property and began undertaking major renovations in an effort to restore the home back to its original appearance. This was done in preparation for the house to be open to the public for the first time since Lizzie's murder trial in 1893. To do this, Martha and Ron consulted the home's original blueprints, contemporary news reports describing the home, and, of course, the crime scene photos. 
Though a massive undertaking, the couple were fortunate that Martha's grandparents had been sensitive to the architectural integrity of the house. We were really lucky that no one went through the house in the 50s and 60s and just tore things down, Martha remarks. They were less lucky when it came to original furnishings. After the trial, Lizzie removed most of the family's possessions and put them into storage in a waterfront warehouse where all were destroyed when a tidal wave flooded the building. The only items Lizzie retained from the house were a sewing machine and writing desk, both of which have never been recovered. So in order to recreate the interiors, Martha and Ron had to scour antique shops and auction houses in search of the same or similar pieces. The crown jewel of finds was a black Victorian sofa, which appears virtually identical to the one where Andrew Borden was hacked to death, immortalized in the horrifically iconic crime seed photo depicting the victim slumped to one side with a face so completely pulverized that it is virtually unrecognizable as human. Period furniture and decoration were supplemented with artifacts and memorabilia related to the crime. In addition to prominently displayed crime scene photos, there were also replicas of Abby and Andrew's bashed-in skulls, used as evidence in the trial. The keys from the jail where Lizzie was held prior to her trial, Lizzie's fishing pole, Andrew's pocket knife, and even an axe. Not the axe, but one that did belong to the Bordens, which they used at their summer house in Swansea, Massachusetts. Everything was coming together nicely, and yet, as is so often the case with haunted houses, the hustle and bustle of the renovations seemed to have stirred up the resident spirits. Martha reports that, as they went about their work, the contractors reported hearing conversations in other rooms, but when they went to investigate, the rooms would invariably be empty. The renovations also uncovered some physical reminders of the deceased. While redoing the walls in one of the guest rooms, Ron discovered an old patchwork job that piqued his interest. He later learned that Victorian investigators had cut a great gouge out of the wall that had been covered in blood and then patched over the hole. Ron simply recovered it and carried on with his task. After months of painstaking work, Martha and Ron officially opened the Lizzie Borden House Bed and Breakfast on the 4th of August, 1996, 105 years to the day since the murders. The original offering was this. For $200 a night, overnight guests could have their pick of three double occupancy bedrooms on the second floor, Lizzie's suite, Andrew and Abby's suite, and the John Morse guest room, named for Lizzie's uncle, where Abby Borden's body had been found. Alternatively, the two rooms in the converted attic were $150 a night. Makes sense, given that they were the servants' quarters. For a small additional charge, all guests could enjoy a breakfast based on Abby and Andrew's last meal. Coffee, Johnny cakes, a kind of cornmeal flatbread, fruit, and molasses cookies. The only thing missing was the mutton and mutton broth, not quite suitable to modern tastes, and probably made all the more unappealing given that it was said that the Borden family had experienced food poisoning from these particular menu items. In the beginning, the business mainly catered to those interested in history and true crime, providing armchair detectives with the unprecedented opportunity to stay overnight in a bona fide historic crime scene. Day-trippers could also go on guided tours of the house and have a more truncated and slightly less scary experience of one of the most infamous murder houses in America. Quite quickly, however, the Lizzie Borden House Bed and Breakfast tapped into a flourishing new market, paranormal tourism. The guided tours would now include ghost stories as recounted by the staff who'd experienced them, and soon there would also be dedicated ghost hunts at the house after dark. Longtime tour guide Sue Vickery became the de facto paranormal expert at the house, after having borne witness to years of spooky encounters, both recounted to her by guests and experienced firsthand. Guests aren't exactly guaranteed a peaceful night's sleep at the house, Sue admits. Some of them say, oh, best night's sleep ever, 
while others say, oh my God, I was seeing things, I was hearing things, then sometimes the cook will get here first thing in the morning and they're gone. They haven't even made it through the night. But Sue's pretty sympathetic. She says she's been so terrified she's literally run out of the house in fright on multiple occasions. Sue claims that her experiences have been so frequent and often so intense that she's felt compelled to consult a psychic medium about why this is. He said, Sue, you have abilities. You're like a beacon to them, she says, referring to the ghosts. So I guess that's why I get picked on in this house. Running through an inventory of her many paranormal encounters, she states, I've been talked to in my ear. I've had icy cold fingers go down me. I've seen black mist form right in front of me, heard footsteps walking overhead. I've been growled at in the basement a few times. Recalling her most memorable experience, Sue describes one morning she had been asked by her employers to strip all the beds and put fresh towels in all the guest rooms. So I had two big armfuls of towels, and I put some of them in the first three bedrooms, but when I opened the master bedroom door that opens up into the attic floor, there was someone up there, a guest, I thought, so I returned and sat down on Andrew Borden's bed. She sat for a few moments, absentmindedly scrolling through her phone, when suddenly a cloud of black mist materialized right out of thin air and slowly swept across the bed. Naturally startled, Sue quickly vacated the room, but still attempted to complete her duties. She went up to what she presumed was now an empty attic story and began putting towels away there. But she realized this black mist guy must have followed me up there because it was swirling in the doorway right near where I was standing. Though it had no human features, she sensed that whatever it was, it was male, and not particularly friendly. In her attempt to articulate the surreal event, she says, The only way I can describe it to you was that it was not solid at all. I could actually see individual black particles swirling in place. To me, it looked like a black tornado. She bolted down the attic steps in a panic, nearly knocking over a guest in her effort to get as far away as possible from the mysterious swirling form. Sue was neither the first nor the last person to encounter this dark entity. The proprietors, other employees, and several guests reported having seen it too, with one even capturing it on camera as it swirled down the staircase. Was this the ghost of Andrew Borden? Maybe. Sue certainly believes he remains in the house. She claims to have spoken to him during a spirit box session, a kind of seance where participants use a radio device which randomly scans AM and FM frequencies, interpreting the snippets of audio as the words of spirits. In conversation with old Andrew, Sue asked him if he wanted her to leave his property. His response through the spirit box was, Why would you leave? A fair point, Sue thought, for she hadn't yet finished her guided tour. Indeed, Andrew is perhaps the most commonly felt presence at the bed and breakfast. He's said to not suffer fools in his former home, and will often make his feelings known in the form of headaches and nausea, which suddenly and mysteriously befall guests who displease him. These symptoms usually disappear once they've moved to another area of the house or left altogether. He's also protective of his possessions, and seems to continue his miserly ways even in the afterlife. One guest learned this the hard way when, while on a guided tour, he surreptitiously stole a handful of coins from Andrew's office desk. These were gifts left behind by visitors in recognition of Borden's reputation for penny-pinching. When the sticky-fingered guest went to check out the following day, he reported to the manager that he'd lost his wallet. The manager promised to call if and when it turned up. Well, it didn't turn up for seven whole weeks. And when it did, the wallet, still containing a thick wad of cash and several credit cards, was found out in the open, in a room in the attic that had been cleaned dozens of times since the man had stayed there. When the man returned to collect the wallet, he brought back Andrew's stolen coins with him, sheepishly apologizing for having taken them in the first place. You stole my money, I'll steal yours, Andrew must have thought. 
And what about Abby Borden? Well, Sue thinks she may have encountered her too. On one tour, she was joined by an amateur ghost hunter who had brought with her what's known as an SLS camera, a device that displays a pattern of infrared dots to represent humanoid shapes when detected in complete darkness. The tour group sat in silence in the pitch-black parlor, hoping to detect a ghost with a nifty little device. At first, the woman wielding it stated that she could not see anything. Are you sure? Sue asked, feeling certain there was someone or something beside her, for suddenly one half of her body had gone icy cold. No sooner had she asked, the woman shouted out that there was indeed a human form alongside her, in front of the hearth. It appeared to be a small figure, crouched on all fours, apparently stoking the fire. Was this Andrew's dutiful wife keeping his final resting place warm for him? Or perhaps as one of the other women of the house, Bridget the maid perhaps? On the same tour, the SLS camera caught the small stick figure once again, this time in the John Morse guest room, standing alongside the bed in roughly the spot where Abby met her violent end. Sue slowly approached the area where the camera was picking up on the figure and tentatively reached out her hand. All of a sudden, someone was reaching back, touching her outstretched hand. My whole hand went completely numb, she recalls. Intriguingly, one of the most haunted rooms in the house isn't actually related to Abby and Andrew's murders at all. It's one of the attic rooms, which is said to be haunted by a pair of ghost children. It's actually a pretty sad story, Sue says. The children are believed to have been the offspring of Eliza and Lodwick Borden, Lizzie's great-aunt and uncle. In the 1840s, the couple and their family occupied the house next door to what would later become the Lizzie Borden house bed and breakfast. Eliza and Lodwick had three children, all of whom they had in relatively quick succession, leaving Eliza feeling overwhelmed and likely suffering from postnatal depression. The story goes that one morning, in a state of blind delirium, Eliza drowned all three children in the cistern well in the cellar, or attempted to. The eldest daughter, Maria, miraculously survived. Once Eliza had realized what she'd done, she proceeded to slice her own throat with her husband's straight razor. What might have remained a dark family secret was unveiled to the public at Lizzie's murder inquest in 1893. In order to determine whether Lizzie was mentally competent to stand trial, questions were asked about the mental health of the Borden family more generally, and it was at this time that Eliza Borden's horrible crime was revealed. However, it was determined that this event, however shocking, was completely irrelevant, given that Eliza was a Borden by marriage only, with no blood ties to Lizzie whatsoever. We do know that these are the children that are haunting this attic, Sue states, referring to information provided by paranormal investigators who've asked after the identities of the spirits and received the names Eliza and Holder in response. It's not like these are common names like John and Mary and could be anybody, Sue points out. Those were the names of the kids who lived next door. But why are the ghosts of little Eliza and Holder in the attic of the neighboring house rather than the house they died in? Sue says a psychic medium visitor once suggested to her that in the 1840s, the two houses may have occupied the same property, and that the kids may very well have gone back and forth between the two residences. Well, maybe, but perhaps the ghost children have determined they have a lot more opportunity to find playmates at the busier Borden residence. Guests who stay in the attic bedroom often report the sounds of giggling and running in the hallway, and paranormal investigators have even managed to get these sprightly entities to play games with them rolling balls back and forth, and lighting up motion-censored toys. After running the successful bed and breakfast in museum for just shy of 10 years, Martha McGuinn decided to sell the Lizzie Borden house in 2004. It was purchased by Massachusetts businessman Ronald Woods for $200,000. 
He was buying it not only as an investment, but also as a lavish gift for his then-partner, Leanne Wilbur, who had fallen in love with the place after they had first visited it together on a Valentine's Day date. Ron would handle the business side of things, while Leanne would serve as manager and guide. Even after they separated, they maintained a good partnership in this regard. Leanne moved into a flat above the museum gift shop, allowing her to keep a close eye on the house and its frequent visitors. Together, Ron and Leanne made the attraction an even greater success than ever before, though they may have been just a little less sensitive to the historical authenticity of the place in comparison with Martha and her partner, Ron. In June of 2004, it was reported in the New York Post that Ron Woods intended to open a Starbucks at the house, a proposal that set the local historical community tutting. The Post quoted one such critic, William Fowler Jr. of the Massachusetts Historical Society, who sneered, Were she alive today, Lizzie Borden would prefer tea and sherry. The Java joint idea ultimately never came to fruition, but Ron and Leanne did welcome many other commercial enterprises, namely film and television crews. In the same year they purchased the property, the Bed and Breakfast hosted the cast and crew of Ghost Hunters, a popular paranormal-themed docuseries which aired on Sci-Fi, an American cable channel between 2004 and 2016. This would be the first of dozens upon dozens of televised ghost hunts conducted at the property. Shows included Haunted Destinations, Haunted Encounters, Ghost Adventures, Most Haunted, and Kindred Spirits, just to name a few. And that's to say nothing of the scores of YouTube ghost hunters who have descended on the property in more recent years. It's a popular destination not only because of its high-profile name recognition, but also because it never fails to deliver on the goods. Where some reputedly haunted venues featured on ghost hunting programs leave users a bit wanting, with the hosts having to resort to histrionics and even fakery to create a watchable show, the Lizzie Borden house rarely requires the assistance of TV magic. As Sue reports, one particularly well-known ghost hunting program, which she does not name, claimed to have spent the entire night locked in the house in order to conduct their investigation. This is how they presented it on the TV show that ultimately aired. But she knows they didn't. They rapidly departed in the middle of the night, relying on their production manager to come back and collect the equipment the following day. Whatever happened was real-world scary, not just celluloid smoke and mirrors. Amy Bruni and Adam Barry, seasoned paranormal researchers who visited the home in 2017, had a major revelation which they shared on a Season 3 episode of Kindred Spirits, their documentary series which aired on the Travel Channel from 2016 to 2018. For all the intense supernatural activity at the property, they noted, the one presence that seemed conspicuously absent from the house was Lizzie Borden herself. Because Amy lives in the area, she's been to the Lizzie Borden house countless times in the past to conduct investigations. She says that, Over the years, I've witnessed a lot of paranormal activity in the home where the murders took place. It's a great spot to bring people who are just learning to investigate, because almost always something happens here. But the more I investigate the Borden house, the more I realize that even though there's strong activity, none of the activity is really interacting with me. My guess is that what's occurring in the house is a highly residual haunt, where there's a lot of energy in the space, but that it's not necessarily from active ghosts, she explains. Although notably, Amy did appear to be interacting with the ghost of Andrew Borden when using an SLS camera in the office. She asked the stick figure that appears to be standing before her to raise his hand and wave, the stick ghost obliges. Regardless, Amy and Adam do not believe that Lizzie Borden haunts the Second Street house. Instead, they think she remains lurking at her subsequent home, the larger and more lavish Maplecroft. 
Makes sense, given that she was known to dislike her father's home. Indeed, she was just dying to get out. Why would she choose to spend eternity in a place she hated? Lizzie's beloved Maplecroft, number 306 French Street, is where she died in 1927. The 4,000-square-foot, eight-bedroom home was later occupied by the Silva family from the 1940s to the 1970s. Frank Silva, who grew up there, doesn't recall any unusual events at the house. Well, at least not paranormal ones. He does fondly recall his childhood pet, a capuchin monkey called Rab, whom he kept in a cage in the kitchen. Frank's grandfather passed away in 1953 in Maplecroft, possibly in the same bedroom as Lizzie, though the Silva family have never claimed their family member haunts the house alongside the accused murderess. In fact, before the home was purchased by Ron and Leanne in 2017, there doesn't seem to have been any reports of the supernatural at Maplecroft. But again, the renovations following the change in ownership seem to have sparked something. In the course of preparing to open the house as another bed and breakfast, Sue and another employee, Deb Vickers, sensed the paranormal activity ramping up. They reported hearing footsteps, a woman's giggle, and doors opening and closing of their own accord. Sue's most dramatic experience was in the bathroom, a bathroom containing the very same clawfoot bathtub that belonged to Lizzie, perhaps one of her most prized possessions after having spent many years in a house that lacked indoor plumbing. As Sue was hanging up the new shower curtains, she chatted away to Lizzie, remarking to her invisible friend that she was really going to enjoy having a shower, but she never really expected Lizzie to respond. But she did. An electrical jolt on the back of her leg. I could feel fingers attach to the jolt, Sue recalls. Amy and Adam decide to conduct several EVP sessions around the house, including that bathroom and the bedroom Lizzie is believed to have died in. Using a tape recorder, they pose questions aloud and await answers. Typical of these sorts of attempts at spiritual communication, the answers are usually not heard by the naked ear, but sometimes can be deciphered in the audio playback. In the bedroom, Amy asks any spirits present to introduce themselves. When they review the tape, they can't quite make out the muffled response. At first, they wonder if the disembodied voice is saying Lizzie Borden, but there are too many syllables, and anyways, it would just be a little too convenient, wouldn't it? Later, however, they discover that the name they caught wasn't Lizzie, but Lizbeth, the moniker, they have since learned, that Lizzie chose to adopt following her acquittal for murder. In response to whether she'd feel comfortable talking about the crime that took place at her father's home, the answer is an emphatic no, and with that, the session is effectively ended. Amy and Adam realize that if they want to communicate with the spirit, they have to change tact. In future sessions, they address the ghost by her preferred name, Lisbeth, and they skew any and all questions relating to the murders. And suddenly, the spirit opens up. I was hearing full sentences, which almost never happens with ghost replies in EVB sessions or spirit box experiments, Amy explains. It was hard to hear, though. She seemed so conflicted and lonely. Reflecting on the experience which she believes might have been the first ever verbal contact with the late Lizzie Borden, Amy muses, I think the only reason that Lisbeth chose to speak to us is that we broke the ice with her and treated her with kindness, even though we were looking for one of the most sought-after spirits of all time who may or may not be a murderer. We don't know for sure. I do know that she has a lot of people calling out for her, and I haven't heard of another time when she's answered. By the end of it, I felt like Lisbeth was my friend. So even though one of the producers was really pushing for us to ask her if she was guilty, we wouldn't do it. We would have violated the trust we'd built with her and everything we had worked for. Three years after purchasing Maplecroft, Ron Woods decided to put it back on the market. 
he had sunk $200,000 into renovations, hoping that it would be an equally successful companion museum and B&B to tell the story of the latter part of Lizzie's life. But then the COVID pandemic hit, and as Ron was getting close to retirement, he decided to abandon the Maplecroft project after all. A year later, the murder house would go on the market too. It probably would have surprised Lizzie Borden to know that the second street house, her father's home, actually sold first for a whopping $2 million, while her own home sat on the market for nearly two years, eventually selling for the more modest sum of 800000 She likely never could have guessed that the murders would actually add exponential value to what she considered a completely unremarkable house. It wasn't the home for her, but clearly it does appeal to an awful lot of others. Always dreamed of running your very own little bed and breakfast? Do four-poster beds and floral wallpaper make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside? Well, if you don't mind the slightly cramped quarters which you'll have to share with both ghosts and ghost hunters, then 232nd Street just might be the home for you. But do mind your head. The ceilings in the attic are quite low. 